Hello, everybody. You're listening to a special episode of the SEA podcast, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association. My name is Vicente Partida, and I'm the Director of Communications at the SEA. Today on the podcast, we're going to be listening to the audio of an interactive webinar we hosted last week, part of our series on the coffee price crisis. SEA board member Vera Espindola Rafael and Fairtrade International's Global Product Manager, Peter Kettler, joined me for a discussion on issues related to farmer incomes, the work of fair trade, and research being conducted on costs of production at the farm level. After our interview, the audience had a chance to ask them some really great questions. After listening to this podcast, if you're interested in learning more about the work that the staff and volunteers of the SEA's Price Crisis team have been working on, please visit sca.coffee forward slash price crisis. That's sca.coffee forward slash price crisis. So let's listen to my interview with Vera Spindola Rafael and Peter Kettler. Here we go. In August 2018, the price of coffee on the sea market fell below a dollar, and there was alarm across the industry. This was the catalyst for the SEA board's decision in December 2018 to launch what we're calling the SEA's Price Crisis Response Initiative. The SEA's response to the coffee price crisis includes research of decades of work done on farm profitability, farmer incomes, Uh, by coffee companies and professionals, academic research, government policy, NGO strategy, and uh, the work done by coalitions of these entities. The price crisis response team will begin to publish the results of this work, including some recommendations for the coffee industry later this month. Today, we're going to talk to two coffee professionals who have experience in several of these efforts, and we're gonna get their take on where specialty coffee might go from here, and the unique role of, of the industry and the SEA in addressing this crisis. So joining me today is Vera Espindola Rafael. Hi, Vera. Hi. Vera is a development economist. In 2016, Vera began work with the Mexican government's Department of Agriculture in what's called the Plan for the Care of Coffee. She is focused on sustainable coffee production in the National Coffee Program, the goal of which was to revive the Mexican coffee sector by increasing productivity in a sustainable manner, and where she also oversaw market strategy. During this time, uh, Vera formed part of the Mexican delegation at the International Coffee Organization and the Mesoamerican coffee program, Prome Café. Vera works as a consultant in both private and public sector with a focus on creating strategies to improve the resilience of coffee farmers. In December of last year, she was elected to the SEA Board of Directors. She serves as board member of the newly created Coffee Science Foundation, and she's part of the SEA's price crisis response team. Recently, Vera has been conducting research on cost of production on coffee farms and is working on a study exploring the opportunities for specialty coffee consumption in coffee producing countries. And so we'll talk about this work during our conversation today. Also joining us today is Peter Kettler. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Peter is the global product manager at Fairtrade International. He has over 25 years of experience in the specialty coffee industry across manufacturing, retail, trading and finance, and has worked with companies and organizations, including Stone Creek, Holland Coffee, TaylorMade Farms, Coffee Kids, uh, and many others. In 2004, he also founded Radio Lifeline, a service to help remote farmers at origin improve farming methods. 
I'm going to mute you, Peter, just sure. for a little it's bit. It's a track. Oh, it's a tractor. Sorry. Um, Fairtrade International's certified products carry minimum prices paid to farmers. And today we'll be talking to Peter about these minimums, Fairtrade's uh, premium primes, uh, premium price, sorry, uh, the organization's living income strategy, and their uh, announcement made in December of last year that the fair trade minimum price for cocoa farmers would be raised by 20%. So Vera and Peter, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Uh, we've invited you both to today's webinar for your work on uh, uh, for your work and your advocacy on farm profitability and farmer incomes. Vera, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about your professional journey. What got you interested in, in issues related to farmer incomes? Thank you so much, Vicente. Um, I think I would just focus primarily on why I started to, to, to work in coffee. Um, and it actually started in the building that I'm currently in. I'm in Ana Cafe, here for a conference on Symposio de Caficultura Latinoamericana, organized by Pume Cafe. And it was actually here a very long time ago that I had the opportunity to collaborate on a project where we studied the value chain of several products, one of them being coffee in uh, Central America, uh, funded by the EU. And um, the intention was to see how much of that value was actually being received by the producer of these different products. And for me, it was very enlightening because um, I did not knew anything about coffee. Um, I drink coffee with milk and sugar. And uh, basically, um, Ana Cafe opened the doors for me to have much of a better understanding on, on what were the challenging faced of uh, these coffee producers and what were they actually making. So um, that led me actually into the whole cost of production um, uh, value chain analysis, which I did. Um, and since then, I actually stayed in coffee. From, from there on, I started to work for, for OOTS, um, a certification and sustainability program now merged with Rainforest. And uh, the rest you already um, shared with the audience. So um, for me, the most important thing um, that I can, that, that, that is important in my work is that at the end of the day, my work dedicates itself to creating that uh, um, benefit and that value for producers. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Vera. What about you, Peter? What brought you? What brought you into into this topic? Um, well, I guess my journey in coffee, you know, started about thirty years ago, and I'm my career is kind of evenly split between uh, the commercial side of coffee and the development side. And the more I started to spend uh, visiting Origin, I started to see that you know the whole coffee industry is predicated on this notion that millions of farmers are going to get up every morning and affirm another day of coffee farming. And once that decision starts to change, you know, the industry changes. So I started to uh, focus on uh, farmer livelihoods, um, first of all with Coffee Kids and then uh, with this NGO Radio Lifeline. And we um, developed a series of broadcasts that um, were weekly broadcasts that would give farmers information about best agricultural practices and what it means to be part of a cooperative, uh, that you're not just uh, a member, but you're also an owner, and then lots of other information about early childhood health, maternal, maternal health, HIV AIDS, financial literacy. Um, and, and so we created a network, and I started to see that 
the more that farmers could learn from one another, um, the, the higher the adaptation rates were. So rather than us going down and telling them what to do, they started learning from one another. And then that just sort of fell into uh, my role in fair trade now that I started in January of 2019. Right, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Vera, let's, uh, let's talk about the, let's uh, talk about the, the price crisis itself. Um, you're part of the SES price crisis response team. The most recent dips in the market have really resonated with folks across the coffee industry in what I think is an unprecedented way. More people across the value chain are interested in this topic and the impact that low prices uh, have on coffee farmers than ever before. I want to start with laying out the foundation for this discussion, going over some of the basics of the coffee price crisis and of the market in general. In basic terms, can you tell us what is the price crisis? Basic terms, right? Um, <laughs> the price crisis is basically at the moment when um, the price drops, uh, a big plunge, into, into a level that actually does not allow for the producer to sustain their coffee production, meaning um, below their cost of production. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, a lot of people then asked, um, why is that? Why has that happened? Um, looking at the current circumstances that we are now, it's simply an, uh, the matter on how coffee is being commercialized. And it's there where um, uh, it's simply a supply and demand issue. There's more coffee um, on the market. Um, and that means also the speculative market, um, adding there to all the other risks that producers currently have now more than before, which is uh, simply climate change risk. And it's not um, not having the conditions um, on which they were used to have. Um, that, and I can go into other factors, is the perfect cocktail for the situation where they're in right now. Right. And Peter, when we're talking about the market, what are we talking about? So the commodity market, you know, the coffee coffee is part of it. Lots of commodities are traded on the, on the commodities market. Um, for coffee, there's one in New York and there's one in London. Basically, the one in New York trades mostly specialty coffee, the one in London mostly Robusta. And if you think about it as sort of a clearinghouse for buyers and sellers, I think the thing to remember about the sea market is that it was created by people in the global north. So there's a lot of price risk uh, protections and mechanisms that are built into the system that aren't readily available to people uh, in the global south. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there's an imbalance in that system. Um, And I think that, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about the price crisis, uh, we're, we're talking about really a fundamental rebalancing of this market to more closely reflect the, the, the risks and the rewards. Because right now, farmers are taking an unbelievable amount of risks because of a combination of factors that include climate change and aging farming population, cost of input, soil fertility, it goes on and on and on. And yet, you know, in a most recent report by a major trading house, 
61% of farmers are now selling coffee under the cost of production. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 61% of farmers right. are selling coffee under the cost of production. So in other words, most farmers, or sorry, more than half of all farmers are selling coffee and not getting enough money basically to continue producing it is the idea. Right. And, you know, Peter, this is, I think, uh, a, a good a good segue into um, talking a little bit about fair trade. Uh, uh, fair trade is one of the most well-known interventions in the coffee value chain, especially as it deals directly with, with prices. Um, in doing research for this conversation, I actually found another interesting link between between your work uh, in that fair trade, I didn't know this fair trade got started in the late 1980s following the collapse of coffee prices to support Mexican coffee farmers. Um, so for those unfamiliar with fair trade's history, can you give us a brief history on the organization? Um, talk to us a little bit about the standards and uh, fair trade's minimums and the premium price. Sure. So it actually um, dates all the way back. Vera and I were just talking about this. Um, it dates back to a, uh, a priest in Mexico in the 1940s who, who was working with coffee farmers and started realizing that there is this imbalance and that farmers weren't able to really make a decent living, much less make a decent business out of coffee farming. And the movement started to grow and there were a number of different chapters around the world uh, in different countries that were really signing on to this movement and this idea. And then uh, in the late, late 1980s, it started to be f become formalized under Fairtrade International. Um, so I think that the unique thing about Fairtrade is that we are 50% owned and governed by producers. So mm -hmm. uh, in order for any changes to happen, we have to build consensus from the bottom up. And it's always uh, focused on what are the needs of producers? How can we meet those needs? Um, so we have uh, a, uh, close to 800,000 coffee farmers in the system right now. Um, we also do other commodities like bananas and sugar and cocoa. And total, we have about 2 million farmers in the system. Um, and the idea of the minimum price came about because we started to see these price dips and that, you know, it, it sort of uh, creates this cycle of poverty that, that farmers can never get out of. And it was fracturing uh, not only family structure, but also the social structure of uh, producing communities. So the fair trade minimum price, which right now is $1.40, was pegged to the average cost of sustainable production. But then we started to realize that if a farmer is just able to keep his or her head just above water and is kind of treading water in the same place, we're not really moving the needle. We're not moving the ball further down the field. And that, that's where the premium came in. So uh, there's a 20 cent premium on top of that and farmers collectively decide how they're going to spend that premium, uh, whether it's on a uh, farm renovation, a school, uh, a health clinic, whatever they decide collectively, that's how they spend it. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, uh, we don't legislate how they, how they spend that money. So uh, in that way, we're really, uh, again, giving farmers the uh, opportunity to decide on their own future. 
Right. And how does the, um, so Fairtrade has a living wage uh, strategy. Talk to us a little bit about, about that. And how is it different from, you know, why do we need a living wage strategy if Fairtrade premiums are enough or should be enough? Yeah, so we started, uh, it, it's actually living income. And, there, there, you know, there's a living income. There's a distinction there between living income and living wage. Yes. Living wage is pretty much um, for hired workers, and living income is for smallholder farmers themselves. So we started digging into this presumption that um, if someone's paying the fair trade premium, it's a panacea for all of the problems of coffee farmers, right? Job well done, farmers are on the road to prosperity. And we know that that's not the case. So we started digging into that in the cocoa sector in 2014. And what we found was pretty surprising and sobering. We found that 58% uh, of fair trade certified cocoa farmers were living below the line of extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. so we can only imagine what farmers who weren't certified uh, were living under. So we uh, developed a tool and a formula to uh, really assess what a living income would be. And the, and the cost of sustainable production is part of this. But it's also, so it starts with this idea of what is a decent living? So it's access to uh, shelter, food, clothing, uh, access to healthcare and education, and then also the ability to put a little bit aside for unanticipated events or uh, maybe uh, something that has been wanted uh, or needed in the family structure and the social in the in the community structure for a while, and then we started to look at well, so how do we how do we arrive at this um, this uh, level of income and this decent standard of living? And so we took it apart and said, okay, it's how many uh, how much uh, how much revenue could be gained by a farmer if everything went well on his or her coffee farm? How much are they um, uh, deriving from other cash crops, what the, what's the value of their self-consumed vegetables, and then any other sort of income that they might be uh, gaining from uh, dairy production or cattle or something like that. And all of that together, um, we came up with a, with a fair trade uh, living income reference price. So in cocoa, the fair trade minimum price at that point was 2,000 US dollars per ton. Mm -hmm. We uh, discovered that in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, uh, what it would take to arrive at a living income would be $3,500 a metric ton. So together with industry and with the governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, we got together and said, how can we effectively take steps toward arriving at a, at a living income? And it was mutually decided that we would raise the fair trade minimum price to $2,400 a metric ton. Most recently, the governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire have taken it one step further and now um, raised it to 2,600, which is, you know, still a far cry from 3,500. But, you know, we're not going to be able to make that leap in a in a commercially viable way in in one step. So um, we're starting to get some pushback, of course, from traders and uh, and the industry itself. But right now it's at 2,600. And I think that's a great example of how collaborative efforts between NGOs, um, uh, individual governments, and, and commercial partners can arrive at a decision that's sustainable for both um, uh, the producer communities and business. 
What do you just a quick question, Peter. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. But but would you say that still in is it enough? The price which is now being the, the twenty six hundred? No. No, of course not. But you know, we, we can't make that leap all at once, right? Because all of a sudden we would be priced out of the market. Cough so so we we migrated this uh, this formula and this work into coffee beginning in January of this year. And because we're owned by farmers, you know, we're getting pushback on, you know, because one of the one of the solutions is, well, why don't you just raise the minimum price to whatever it's going to be in that individual country, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Only 34% of fair trade certified coffees are sold under certified contracts. The rest have to be sold commercially. So if we were to raise the minimum price from $1.40 to, let's just say, $2, hypothetically, how much market share would we lose in a market that's below a dollar? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and does that serve the purposes of farmers? So, you know, I think that, um, that the role of NGOs and especially speaking for fair trade is to create a roadmap toward what sustainability looks like. We need to define the target and then collaboratively, we have to come up as with a solution as an industry to how we're, gonna, how we're going to arrive at that. No single NGO, no single company, and no single uh, country is gonna be able to do this on their own. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, uh, 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 what you need to understand um, to set a minimum price and to, I mean, to, to talk about this topic in general is cost of production, right? And so one of the things that um, that's important is that cost of production differs depending on, I mean, obviously it differs by farm, but it differs by region, it differs by country, and it differs greatly. So um, Vera, um, I wanted to, to, to ask you about um, what should we, as an industry, what should coffee professionals who care about this topic understand about cost of production? Um, I think one of the elements that everybody needs to understand and i will definitely there include within that pool of people you just mentioned coffee preferential producers that it varies and it varies because of many factors um simply because how coffee was introduced in their countries to all the way on how is simply coffee was developed um from the market perspective in the last years and um so and, and it's a challenge it's, it's there for a challenge to just simply compare cost production numbers from one country to another recently i think two years ago for example Boma Cafe um presented a regional study on cost of production uh with the support of the cost institution in the region and uh within that you could clearly see that well the one that was producing with um a higher cost in comparison Costa Rica um, and um, within the Central American countries um, Honduras was one that was producing at a lower cost of production you would say well that then they're, they're more efficient or say but if you go dive deeper uh, the reality is simply in in that comparison is that Honduras um, pays much less to their producer or to their workers than Costa Rica mm -hmm. hence Perhaps that that is one of the factors that why certain people are migrating from Honduras. You know, they simply cannot support their family with what they're receiving. So maybe from a general point of view, would say, oh well, they 
are more efficient on how they produce coffee. Well, not necessarily. Is that a good thing? The number in itself in the comparison. So we need to be very careful on how we compare certain numbers, um, especially when it comes where is it more um, less where is it less expensive to buy coffee from, so to say. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter, does that um, when we were before um, when we were prepping for for this webinar, we talked a little bit about. Um, the difference, the differences between cocoa production, the, coffee, the cocoa industry, and the coffee industry, and the differences are pretty big, right? Um, talk to us a little bit about those differences and what you think um, doing something like what Fairtrade has done with in, in cocoa might be, uh, how that might be applied to coffee. Sure. So um, you know, cocoa. Well, first of all, the the number of countries where it's produced. Um, at an exportable level is much smaller than coffee. We have many more coffee producing uh, regions. Um, and also the number of major manufacturers and traders are much smaller. So it's a lot easier to get those people in a room and hopefully if you can't build consensus, at least start to have a discussion about what the target looks like. I think that in, in coffee, it's a lot more difficult obviously because of the number of stakeholders. Um, I think that what's really important in these discussions, and you know, Vera's been part of this uh, coffee price crisis initiative, and there are any number of other organizations that are trying to address this in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things we have to be really, really cognizant of is that in the past, um, you know, this, this, this hasn't just arrived whole cloth, it, you know, like a volcano or something like that, like a like a natural disaster. There are signs that this has been happening for many, many years. And yep. we either haven't recognized them or uh, we've chosen not to address them in a systemic way. So I think that it's really, really important that, you know, I've, I've been uh, part of any number of conversations and uh, meeting rooms around the world, uh, as has Vera and any number of people on the on the call. And one of the things that always strikes me is that we're discussing a price crisis that primarily affects producers, right? I mean, there's a there's a trickle up effect of of how it how it affects the rest of the industry, but really it's a crisis for producers. And yet, when you look around the room in these meetings, there aren't any producers in the room. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a collaborative discussion rather than this reflexive kind of um, approach, which is, well, we're going to decide and then we're going to deliver our prescription to farmers. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the other side of that coin is that let's just say that it's um, that part of our description is quality improvement or increased productivity. Um, we don't, uh, the average price of, a, uh, the average uh, uh, age of a farmer now is somewhere between 57 and 60 years old, right? You've been farming all your life, you're bone tired, you've been living uh, under a price crisis for a, num for a number of months, if not years, you've seen this before, and now all of a sudden the prescription is farm renovation, and they're doing a, a you know, a cost benefit analysis and going, am I going to, you know, uh, uproot a third of my coffee farm and then, you know, wait three years and then uproot another third and another third um, without any sort of an insurance policy or support from the industry? 
So I think that, you know, the two things that we need to do is bring producers into the conversation to make sure that it's sustainable and it's not just from our point of view. And the other thing we have to do is come up with some sort of mechanism to support farmers while they're going through this transition period to either um, uh, do farm renovations or uh, do other capacity build building measures that are going to help them weather the next price crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an excellent point. And Vera, you, uh, in your work, talk to producers on a daily basis. I know both of you do. What are you hearing from producers? right, in, in terms of, of, of what's happening, right? Um, what are they telling you? I, th I think it, it, it varies a bit in, in what type of country or region you are. Um, yesterday, I was talking to a technical assistant from ICAFE from Honduras, and he was saying to me, I asked him, so what is the situation? Um, what are you seeing? Uh, how are producers reacting? And, I said, and it's true, he says. He says, well, um, definitely they're not maintaining as they should their farms. That's that's one that you can see that with a lot of producers, they simply don't have the income, the money to maintain what they have. That that's and the second one is um yeah definitely there are um producers leaving their fields, leaving their homes and families in order to find uh a better life somewhere else. This morning I saw a presentation of FuseNet, um, which is a regional platform here in in, in uh, Central America, Mesoamerica, and they were also mentioning that you know, out of the what are the reasons and where are you going? Um, there was one that's clear: it's like I'm I'm leaving because I do not have enough income to support my family anymore from coffee. And secondly, where are you going? Like a 10% don't know what kind of strategy they can have, but it's all up to 41% that are really going to the US specifically in this case, and a much smaller portion to other uh, cities in uh, Honduras itself. And it's for me, it's, it's that sad reality that we are unable as a sector to stop it for continuing for this to happen because this is still happening and will continue happening upcoming harvest even more so. And there is also another side of, you know, of producers that still um, have, and I would say a certain vision for themselves and for their families. And uh, recently um, with the work that I'm doing with Azahar um, in Colombia, producers that through the mechanism that they have set up with a specialty coffee exporter are able um, still to reinvest on their farm so they can maintain it and some buy uh, an extra plot of land in order to secure um, a certain scenario from happening in the future, which is, from my perspective, very applaudable in these times. You know, uh, this farmer and uh, a person from Azar told me, you know, she's buying extra land or she already bought extra land, which is great news, right? And you would say, well, yes, but it's there and exactly what Peter just said, you know, thinking of having extra land means extra cost, means you need to have the liquidity in order to buy plants, put it on your farm, that's manual labor, you could not do it in any other form. So you need that liquidity and for the next three years, you don't have an income of that extra plot of land, you just have costs. And if you do not prepare well as a producer, you will get into a certain debt. Hence, you will go to la banca agraria, get a loan, 
start paying that debt and maybe you're still becoming in that cycle of poverty and the cycle of not having sufficient income for the next few years. That's an issue. So it's applaudable. I'm not sure sometimes if it's wise, financially speaking. Could I just, could I yes, just jump in there for a second? I mean, I think another aspect of this um, uh, price crisis that we're not really uh, uh, addressing adequately is what Vera was just talking about. That you know, a lot of times um, uh, coffee farmers are also leaders in their community. And if they start abandoning their farms and finding work elsewhere or emigrating to you know another country, that the whole social fabric of that community starts to sort of dissolve. The other aspect that that the industry needs to be aware of is that uh, lower uh, uh, prices for coffee affect quality, right? So. Uh, in the next harvest and the next harvest, I mean, farmers are not able to do the kind of either farm maintenance or even, you know, hopefully farm renovation to be able to produce and meet the the demand for high quality coffee. The other thing that 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 that's really impacting this because the uh, you know the title of this webinar is um, uh, shareholders versus smallholders and where do these right? So as we start to look. Uh, at this problem, I think it it's also important to think about the lens that we're looking at looking at it through, and uh, we're seeing an unprecedented uh, amount of consolidation in the coffee industry right now. Uh, major companies are buying up smaller companies, and one of the results of that is that um, we're starting to see payment terms, you know, ballooning to 180 and even up to 300 days. And those costs, those financing costs, are being oftentimes passed on to uh, co-ops or uh, individual farmers. And so on top of lower prices, now they're even lower prices because they have to assume these financing costs. And I think that once you bring um, uh, shareholders into the mix, a lot of times the, the lens that they're looking through is a lot shorter, right? They want immediate returns. And what we need to do is look at this problem through a long-term lens, right? That, that in order to create sustainability, um, we're, if we continue doing the same thing, sustainability is not going to magically arrive 10 years down the line. And what we need is really a, a bold initiative. And we have seen a lot of innovation in the, in the coffee industry at the higher end of the supply chain in terms of how coffee is delivered to consumers, uh, 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 brewing equipment, lots of different things. But we have failed to sort of migrate that innovation to the very beginning of the supply chain. Speaking of consolidation, I wanna go back to the example we were, we were talking about earlier related to cocoa, right? Um, it, it, um, and Peter, I want you to correct me because I think I'm wrong, but it, it almost sounds, um, the impression that I got from the comment you made related to cocoa is that it's almost easier to do what Fairtrade has been doing in the, co in the cocoa industry because there are fewer players. Is it safe to assume that that could be the case with, few, uh, with more consolidation on the coffee side, that it could be easier to achieve something like what you're you've been able to achieve on, on the cocoa side? Well, I think that the difficulty is in any of this that, um, you know, we can, uh, as we've done in the past, 
we have uh, a series of meetings and we come up with recommendations. And a lot of them are workable solutions. But NGOs and individual governments can't enact these measures without a commercial partner or a group mm -hmm. of commercial partners that are willing to embrace this. So let's just take the, the, the case of living income. Let's say that um, living income for a family of four in Colombia, hypothetically, is $2 a pound. You know, I'm not st stating that that's the case, but let's just use sure. it as a case study. Um, what company is going to be willing in, in 89 cent or 90 cent or even a dollar market to pay twice the amount for their, for their coffee um, and risk being out of the market and, uh, and, and losing their competitive edge? So I think mm -hmm. that you know, this is really an important thing that we need to, um, to tackle is how do we engage with commercial partners and who is willing to, to stick their neck out and say, if this is going to lead to sustainability, then we're signing up. Mm -hmm. Veda, what would you add to that, right, uh, in terms of commercial partners in, in coffee? You know, I, 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 I'm, I, at the same time, when Peter was mentioning this, I, it's, it's, it's something that even in, in, in this setting where I'm, I'm here at a conference, there are a lot of uh, researchers, technical assistants, some producers as well. And what they want simply is to have a market, sell their coffee with a margin, with a profit margin. That's what they're looking for. And um, you would say that if we are understanding of the global market in that perspective, it does not coincide with what these shareholders want. They want, if it's possible, I think even cheaper coffee at this rate. And it's it's a sad reality that that match doesn't happen. But I must say that there are um, different type of sized companies that are willing to take that risk. And I think it's, the, it's from my perspective, that's the promising side of this, that as you just said at the beginning, Vicente, there are much more people are interested in helping, want to understand what is happening and why it happens and what they can do. And I think understanding on um, how these, what are these socioeconomic conditions of farmers? Why are they in this situation has, is because of many factors. Um, what I'm, what we're trying to do, for example, in the case of just to come up with, with one example, um, mm -hmm. is with Azahar, with the Sustainable Coffee Buyer Guide, is to have to give a better understanding of what are the cost of productions of these producers in these particular areas. Um, what is what, what income goal do we have in mind for them in order to have a sustainable livelihood? one but also sufficient um, additional income in order to reinvest on their farms just as an assumption that that should be um, together with a, a living wage for their workers and an and add-on for um, a reinvestment on their farms and at the end of the day I think those initiatives even if they're on a smaller scale are of importance for this sector are because they're simply companies that are saying, 
we're a maker of profit. And if I can still continue to make a profit, I need to assure that where my coffee is coming from needs to be assured for. So it needs to be covered and needs to have also that profit margin. Um, so I think there are companies and perhaps much smaller and smaller than what we are looking for um, that are willing to stick their neck out. And I think that mm -hmm. is under the umbrella of fair trade companies that buy fair trade, as well as companies that simply have a firm belief that buying specialty coffee on this on with a certain um, uh, commercial <coughs> mechanism supports the producer to continue their farming. I want to come back to, um, and, and my apologies because I didn't introduce the, pro the project that you've, you've mentioned a couple of times now, and I want, to, I want to ask you about that so you can give us uh, um, some, some information about that. But, and this is a yes or no question for the both of you, right? Is there enough, um, whatever the solution or the solutions to this crisis are, is there enough of a critical mass in coffee, when we're talking about commercial partners, is, are there enough companies, enough individuals interested in finding a solution that that a solution can actually be implemented? Is that where we are now, in a place that maybe we weren't 10, 15, 20 years ago? I, I would say, uh, and that uh, links to Peter's uh, comment before, I would say no, because if we were really being open and really trying to understand with all those field visits that organization and companies do that what we would have seen and as we have seen that this has been coming for a very long time this is not new i mean this is the second crisis in a lapse of 15 years or 20 years and we have been seen for a very long time that for the majority of the producers they are not able to have a decent livelihood and it now it's because price dropped below the cost of production and we all kind of agree on it. Now it comes to light more. But no, if we would have more companies uh, understanding that, that issue, uh, we would not have been here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And I think that um, I think that we're in a, at a critical inflection point right now. I, you know, I would agree that um, we've, we've been here before, but this is different because we have um, uh, this aging farming population. We, uh, youth are not incentivized to become coffee farmers. They have a much wider window on the world than their parents or grandparents did because of social media, the internet. Uh, um, and they see that, you know, they, they've seen the struggles that their parents and grandparents, their, their whole family has gone through. And they go, you know, I think I'm going to go to the city. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that it's really critical for the industry to move the discussion of this price crisis away from just ethics. There is a very uh, strong case for, for ethics, but it's also a business decision. And I mm -hmm. think that that's what we're starting to see is that companies are starting to realize that unless this collective group of farmers get up, as I said before, every morning and say yes, the whole rest of the industry is built on sand um, and will collapse. Um, and, you know, 85% of coffee is still grown by smallholders. Um, and while Brazil and Vietnam have created efficiencies that, and, uh, you know, um, scales of, uh, uh, 
of economy that they can sell coffee for, I don't know, their cost of production now is what we're like around 80, 75 cents, something like that. So they can make a profit in this current market. And unless we do something, you know, the, 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 the going joke is that in 20 years, you're gonna be go into a cafe and people will say, what kind of coffee would you like? We have both kinds, Vietnamese or Brazil. Um, so I think that it's really necessary for, for, the, for the industry to start to see this in a long-term lens that it's not just about ethics, it's about business. Mm -hmm. I, wanna, I wanna leave the last 15 minutes of this, of, uh, uh, of this webinar to open it up for questions, but I did wanna come back. We talked about uh, uh, Fairtrade extensively, I think. I wanted to come back to a pr uh, project that you're working on, Vera. Um, in if I have if I have this correct it's in Colombia and Mexico um, and you're doing some research there so uh, you mentioned it briefly earlier but uh, can you tell us what is it what's the what's the project that you're working on um, who's funding it what's the primary objective what is it that you're looking to achieve um, so the, the 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 project is um, done by Azar Azar is a exporter especially coffee exporter based in Colombia and they um, have commissioned a study and I'm working um, for them where the main purpose is to explore um, a new way of how to buy coffee. And within that vision, the intention is to come up with a sustainable coffee buyer guide, which is based on um, case studies that we have done in four departamentos uh, in Colombia. Um, and where we basically did a cost of production study and from there on to have a better insight on uh, what it actually is to what the cost actually is to produce coffee in there. I think the main takeaway from the whole work uh, that we're doing and, and, and it will be uh, published uh, this year is that what we're seeing is that even so, um, you know, selling and everybody knows is selling your coffee, especially coffee, not necessarily is 100% of your coffee, right? Uh, the majority sometimes sell 50% or less. Um, that we're seeing that simply the amount of um, family labor involved in producing coffee, um, measuring that is complex, um, comparing is complex. Um, and I think that the most important thing is that we need to very much shift in our mindset of this is the cost of production. We need to head towards a living wage, plus the benefits, and we need to head towards that, giving that sufficient value of producing coffee. And that comes with having that uh, additional um, um, income in for reinvesting on your plot of land. Um, and it's as, you know, as Peter just said, producing any crop comes with huge risks. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think that you're producing something, I mean, you're not, you're not sure if you're selling it. That mm -hmm. it's, it's, if you put that in this different context with a different product, nobody does that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the most riskiest things that you can do. And still we have almost 12 million families doing so. At the end of the day, the majority of them 
are families. So we need to really look into this family. How does they? How do they work? And I really also believe that it's still it can be still a sustainable coffee business for everybody in the supply chain, even with calculating all the aspects in that I was just mentioning. It should be right. And um, do, they, do I have this right that these are studies that you're doing in Colombia and Mexico, correct? No, just in Colombia. Azahar just operates in Colombia. Just in Colombia, okay. And one would think cost of production. Colombia, they've already figured this out. What can you tell us about um, um, I, I about just... the existence of, of cost of production data, not just in Colombia, but the rest of the coffee producing world? I mean, I think we generally know what kind of what are the ranges of these numbers. I think um, doing an exercise like one always benefits the ones that are involved within the study of a better understanding how they operate. That one of the things that I most lo love about this particular product is the opportunity to not just get data from producers, but also to cycle them back with information on why should you at least have a certain notion on your cost of production. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not for Azahar, it's for you as a producer, why do you need at least to know how much did you produce? Not, the sim simply knowing what is the price is not enough for you to know how you're doing on your farm. Because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, you need to have towards a return of investment. You know, it's a family, these are mostly family businesses. And that exercise, what we did with the producers, um, it, 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 it's with any type of um, topic that you want to bring to a certain audience. Um, some will capture it more than others. And um, at this day, I still have producers WhatsApping me saying, I have, uh, I'm starting to record this or I'm starting to register this. And as I always said, you know, it shouldn't be statistically accurate in the other other detail. Just having a notion is already fine. That's already good. But not knowing, we should move away from that. And even smallholders can move away from that. Even in their own how they, they they as you know, also this morning, and sorry for referring back to the symposium, also this morning. The majority of the producers that were interviewed in a certain study by uh, INCAI, which is a business school in, in Costa Rica, said the majority of the producers do not know, do not have records on paper on how their cost of production is, but they do have a very fairly good memory. And it's simply a, a matter of sometimes distilling that on a piece of paper in a certain way. You don't need to do it every single day, but there is, there is, a, there is for me, especially in these times, that producers need to have that um, more implemented to at least know what they produce um, and what kind of is their cost of production. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's definitely a lot to be said about the need for the industry as a whole to know more about what's happening about the cost of production, that 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 the available data on that is very, 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 very little. But also what you're saying here is that is that we need to uh, support farmers in helping them sort of understand their own cost of productions because that their own cost of production because that matters as well. So let's get to the um, to the questions. We only have a few minutes left, um, but we do have a couple of uh, hands raised. I see Roselena Cantu. 
uh, raise your hand first. So oh, I'm going to start with her. Um, hi, Rosalena, can you hear us? Well, I, I do have a question. The first question is, do you think that uh, this monopolized market is, 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 is going to be broken? Who's your question for? Who do you want to start with? With Vera, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Hola, Rosie. Um, oh. I don't think so. Okay. What I do think is that, okay, so I wanted to say I don't think so. I, I do think that um, we as, um, as producing countries need to act more um, in order to be more powerful in information, to have more leverage on our side, um, and to define strategies to leverage that or to balance that out. And I think one of the reasons is definitely um, linking to specialty coffee production and enhanced specialty coffee commercialization, be it uh, exporting or in, in, in our countries itself, is of importance to start to gain a certain balance uh, in there. So unfortunately, I don't think so. And that's what Peter thinks. I'd agree. I'd agree. I, I mean, I just see more consolidation, and I think that the that the risks that uh, farmers are are enduring uh, are go are going to increase. And you know, there are some predictions by World Coffee Research and a number of other people that you know are paint a pretty stark picture of what coffee production is going to look like, just in terms of what. Uh, the the availability of land to grow coffee that's going to be suitable for growing coffee is going to diminish, you know, uh, pretty dramatically by 2050. Mm -hmm. We have um, we have another question here uh, from Tom Booth, and actually he submitted a question early on, but he's also raised his hand. So Tom, I am unmuting you. You want to ask a question? <laughs> um, yeah, I asked a question before, and I thought I actually lowered my hand, um, but. Thanks very much indeed. It's been uh, really good today. It was more on the, um, I think the fair trade price we talked about for cocoa. We saw that go up, and you saw, looking at the cost of production, how that was increased for cocoa. But with coffee, it's 140 and it's been 140 for a long time. There was two questions really. One was, do you think that the 140 could be increased as it was for cocoa? Mm -hmm. And secondly, do you think 140 is the right price? For to have as fair trade across all origins or in different origins with different cost of production and different yeah different everything should there be different fair trade prices yeah so um we're undergoing our coffee standard review right now um it's a very long process because there has to be a, a lot of consultation from a number of different stakeholders uh, the last time we did this there were 500 different um, producer groups that weighed in uh, and again we we can't set the price ourselves it has to be in in um, collaboration with with the farmers um, do I think that a dollar forty is is adequate in right now no but but again it's um, you know we have to talk about the minimum price and the um, 
and the premium. So we're talking about a dollar sixty, and I would say probably seventy percent of fair trade coffee also carries an organic certification, which carries another premium of thirty cents. So we're talking about the vast majority of coffee that's certified being sold for a dollar ninety. Um, it's getting close to the cost of production in, in some areas, but I think that's why we're really engaged in this living income. Um, it, there's been a lot of talk over the years about setting different minimum prices for different re regions. And I think that this tool that we're developing and have developed um, for living income is showing us what these different uh, costs are in different regions. So that's under consideration. But again, um, we're only selling 34%. We have overcapacity of, of certified coffees right now in the system. And there's a fear of those volumes dropping. Thank you, Peter. Um, we've got a few questions here from Dean and also a hand raise. So uh, Dean, let's hear from you. How's it going? Yeah, I thought I'd go ahead and just consolidate these questions. Uh, the first question is uh, primarily geared towards you, Peter. What what I feel like I'm hearing in part is that um, uh, the coffee supply chain in general has uh, just it sounds like poor trade agreements, you know, as I'm listening to you and especially thinking about supply and demand and how to manage, you know, not only like the current commercial supply and demand, but also like fair trade supply and demand. And so we can't like, we can't uh, put the price too high. Otherwise it could box us out of actually having living income for producers. And so I'm curious if there's talks as far as like in between uh, countries, consuming countries and producing countries of you know like maybe restricting supply or taking a look at it through like a supply chain management perspective and then the second question i think is for both of you i'm especially as i think about power dynamics between the global north and south do you find that more co-ops and producers are starting to roast coffee in order to capture value back from the global north in particular yeah so um we are starting to see that there's more and more um uh, uh local you know um initiatives toward uh local consumption happening um but again that's changing a whole culture um because a lot of co coffee growing countries do not have a culture of drinking coffee because it was a valuable exported uh, forgive me commodity. Peter, I'm, so, I'm so sorry i was actually thinking about like exported roasted coffee in particular, and so not oh. necessarily for local consumption, gotcha. but exporting to consuming markets in particular in order to recapture value in the global north. Yeah, there is some talk about that. You know, there there's so many logistical challenges to that, um, both in terms of taxation because it's now a finished packaged product that comes into the country. So you're you're rather than a raw commodity, um, as we all know, to get. Uh, coffee stocked on a grocery store shelf. It, there has to be distribution deals, all of that. So there are a lot of lot of hurdles to that. In terms of countries talking to one another, I mean, in the news recently, there's been um, reports of Brazil and Colombia coming together to discuss how to address this. And I think that it's a good sign that um, producers and producing countries are starting to come up with, or at least discuss mechanisms for uh, managing supply on their end. Um, yeah. Do you find that producing countries are also talking with consuming countries in particular, like the EU or the US? Um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with those talks. Um, you know, one of the most interesting things that's 
that that's happening right now that um, so I'm going to be giving a, a talk to the German parliament next next month because there's a long standing uh, coffee tax in Germany, which has been in existence for hundreds of years and uh, actually produces millions, if not a billion dollars for the German government. And they are starting to consider after lots of advocacy on the part of fair trade to uh, suspend the coffee tax for sustainably produced coffees so that um, a consumer no longer has to make the choice of, well, I would like to buy fair trade or organic, but it's so much more expensive than, than other coffees. So it would sort of level the playing field. Now, we're at the top of the hour here. Uh, Vera and Peter, are you uh, both happy to stick around for another 10, 15 minutes to keep sure. uh, answering some questions? Sure. Sure. Can I, can I just jump in on... Please. And, and um, so there is um, a platform called the International, Intergovern in, sorry, International Coffee Organization, which is basically the mechanism for countries to connect between producing and consuming countries. And it's here where um, since um, end of last year, um, beginning of this year, a new process is starting uh, regarding should we not uh, amend or come up with a new co international coffee agreement. And the last one was created in 2007. Um, I do think that um, these institutions, um, or, or especially this one, has the role to lobby um, between and, and, and have the countries to become together within this setting. And it's interesting, especially since the World Coffee Producer Forum started, that there is much more momentum for these talks to happen on a higher level, so to say. Um, at the same time, um, in Mexico currently, we have uh, today a um, meeting between the Secretary of Agriculture of the whole region. Uh, so that means that the, all the secretaries come together to discuss certain issues. Coffee is now also on the agenda. So that means that uh, between, between countries, we are looking into strategies um, that we together define as important ones to address. One of them, um, and this recommendation then goes into the Secretary of Agriculture, which then goes as a certain feedback towards the ICO meeting that has come up. Additionally, also, um, in the week of the ICO, that's on the 24th of September, on the 25th of September, there is a UN meeting in New York, where also the countries will be coming together to talk specifically about coffee, and specifically the coffee crisis. So I think all these moments are showing that there is the need to intervene and to act. Coming back a bit on the regional strategies that uh, the Ministry of Agriculture are trying to define, one of them, which is high in the agenda, is simply promoting more um, consumption of coffee within our countries, um, which definitely is an important one for our countries in order to assure a certain stability um, in terms of income, as well as in, in, in terms of um, having uh, not to depend on other countries um, for certain price uh, and revenues. Right. We have here, I, I, I do want to add, we don't have enough time to talk about it on this call, but I do want to add 
uh, uh, Vera and I, uh, I interviewed Vera for 25 Magazine on this very topic. There's some research that she's been doing on uh, coffee consumption in, in, in traditionally coffee producing countries. Um, it's on the latest issue of 25, so check it out. If you don't have the print subscription, you should go to sdanews.coffee slash 2525. We have another hand raised over here, uh, Dr. Tim Rayner. Hello. Good afternoon, can you hear me? Yes. So I, I'd like to take a step back. Um, one of the previous questions was about vertically integrating the co-op for the coffee producing country. Um, the, the current supply chain is very colonial. It, it benefits everyone upstream. Um, it's a billion dollar industry, billions and billions and billions. Of I, I don't understand um, technology is a, is a disruptor. We now have the ability to market and communicate from all over the world to consumers. And so I would like to see us focus some conversations on helping cooperatives vertically integrate and communicate directly to consumers so that the farmers in the cooperative can participate in the revenue stream <laughs> and not just necessarily um, the distributor or the marketer in the United States. Now, it, it doesn't solve all issues, but we do have the ability to roast in Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica, and through any type of platform, communicate our brand directly to consumers in Germany and China or the US. I just think the current supply chain needs to be dismantled. Any thoughts on on uh, Dr. Rayner's idea that the current supply chain needs to be dismantled? Yeah, I would, um, you know, I uh, I guess that I'm an advocate for change, not anarchy. anarchy. Um, so I think that rather than dismantling it, we need to uh, rebalance it, as I said earlier. Um, and I think that there's this, in, in, in a lot of the discussions that I've been part of, even though it's, uh, you know, the subject is a coffee price crisis, there almost seems to be this resistance um, to talk about the mechanism of how coffee is bought and sold, almost as if the current commodity market is like a, you know, uh, um, a divine oracle, you know, that can't be questioned. And it was, it was developed by humans and it can be changed. And um, I think it needs to be changed and innovated to reflect current conditions. And, you know, I, I've i gone on this rant before and people just, you know, say that I'm talking semantics, but I think that their language is so important in, in coffee, both in terms of how we've developed a lexicon to describe coffee so that we can share that information and also um, uh, how coffee is bought and sold. You have to use a very specific language. And yet we use the term supply chain, which you know has all sorts of connotations to it. Um, uh, slavery, uh, it's, there's, there's a hierarchy in a supply chain, those at the bottom, those at the top. Um, and uh, there, it, it also speaks to a transactional nature between the links. So once one link makes a transaction with another link, then it goes up the chain. And I've, you know, I've, I've sort of been advocating for this use of the term supply circle because I think that it more closely reflects what we need to be approaching. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, unless everybody 
in that supply circle has their needs met in terms of having a viable business, which is what we're talking about. We want good business partners at origin. And unless we're able to address that fundamental uh, mechanism by how coffee is bought and sold, um, then we're just putting band-aids around it. Um, and, and farmers end up becoming recipients of charity when you know, prices fall to this level. And that's not gonna solve it long-term. So I agree that it has to be changed. Um, I'm not sure that we need to throw it out. Better, what do you think? Can I just ask? So, yeah, I, I, I agree, but I wanna add an additional thought that, you know, many of the times we, we talk about uh, that added value that's not being um, generated enough or captured enough by producers. And it's something that yesterday at the opening I heard, and it's simply true that added value is created after, you know, the green coffee is being shipped, the roasting and everything, and then you create that added value and, and hence, therefore, it's, it's on the other side of the supply chain where it's captured. I do think there is a, there is a that we need to shift our minds and think also more the value already created from the tree all the way to the green coffee, from the tree all the way to parchment where the majority producers um, sell it uh, for. That's already a tremendous effort. That's already a huge amount of value of to be able to sell something that has grown for three, four years, and now you are harvesting. That capture, that's already a tremendous value. That capturing and that shifting of maybe we should give that more value, I really am open to open up that dialogue because I do think that we're not creating sufficient value for that coffee at that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think that we're in this dialectic where price determines value rather than value determining price. And everybody agrees that the the pinnacle of quality for coffee is is the moment it's picked, and we can either you know preserve that, uh, degrade it, or maybe slightly enhance it. But that's where the real value lies, and um, it's not being rewarded at the same you know level as further up the supply chain. So I would, I would agree. But I have a question for you. You were talking earlier about um, um, the fact that you know you're seeing. Uh, uh, governments at the at the national international intergovernmental level talking about coffee in a way and and, and and the price crisis in a way that they weren't before when the conversations that they're having that that and the conversations that you're hearing at the government level are they are the conversations more uh on the side of what dr rayner was saying let's let's just scrap the system and start all over or is it are, are they talking about incremental change um, they're more talking about, um, so specifically here in the region, more of my, my experience lies, is collaborating on a regional level is of importance. Um, when, you, when you're simply thinking of sheer amount of producers and volume, we all speak the same language, we all speak Spanish, so it's easier for us to work together. And that's the mm -hmm. emphasis um, of the different secretaries of agriculture cultures work more together when it comes to um, coffee uh, research, um, sharing that more uh, across the region. So from Mexico all the way down to Panama. And um, 
one of the aspects is, of course, is how is business being done currently? And it's here where they say, okay, so we need to make sure that the, what I just mentioned, that value that's being created here, that we are, that the producers are sufficiently paid for. And mm -hmm. there are different strategy, strategies being thought. Okay, so how can we make sure of that? Um, I, I do think that um, the governments are here definitely open to and, and are doing so to talk to the companies and to come up with certain strategies to work for all. Uh, There's not that necessarily that uh, uh, um, adversary towards company. Uh, Keith says, uh, hi, this question is for Peter. Um, can we see the cost of living wage model for coffee farmers? This would be very useful in conversations with our customers. Yeah, so um, I forwarded a, a, a document that sort of explains the work on, on living income to you guys. And I think that if it hasn't been posted on the SCA site, it will be soon. Um, uh, so, that, you know, that's... That, we that's can send the, it to the webinar attendee. Yeah, great. Yep, we'll include it in um, an email that'll go out with the, with the recording of this webinar, Keith. Um, let's see, we, we don't have any more hands up, so I'm going to, uh, uh, we have a couple more minutes. So I'm going to go down this list of questions that we have here. Um, we have one from Juan Manuel Vélez. The question is, what should be the balance for big producers between productivity, productivity and trying to produce specialty coffee with new processes and varietals in order to get better prices? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll answer it first, um, real briefly. Um, you know, I used to be uh, a member of the tribe in the uh, specialty coffee industry that thought that productivity and quality were the panacea, the answer to all of the, the ills of the coffee industry. And, um, you know, I sort of left that tribe a few years ago when I started to really delve into the the, the challenges that farmers have. So I think that um, that quality improvement and uh, uh, yield improvement are part of the puzzle, but they're not they're not the whole thing. Um, so we, so we can address some of these really uh, deep systemic problems through those two mechanisms alone. Agreed. Agreed. Excellent. Okay, um, we've got many more uh, questions here. Uh, what we're going to do, like we do with these webinars, is we're going to go through all of the questions and uh, try our best to answer them, and we'll post answers to them um, on the um, article, the SCA News article, where you'll find the recording for this webinar. Um, I do want to mention, um, as part of the the SCA's mid-year update to the prices, the price crisis response initiative, which we held a couple of weeks ago, we asked the community to get involved in this process, uh, reviewing the draft materials in progress. So these are the the the, uh, the reports, the even graphs that that this team has been working on as part of this uh, as part of as part of this work, and many many people have responded. Uh, the team is still coming through and synthesizing the feedback that they have received um, for these materials. And some, some clear themes have emerged, so that's been really interesting. One of them um, has been calling on the SCA to engage more closely with governments, um, representing the role of specialty on the national and intergovernmental sort of uh, uh, side. And um, 
but we we do want to encourage people that if anyone on this on on this webinar is interested in reviewing these materials or just getting involved in general with the process knowing more about what's happening if you have any questions anything that we didn't get to today um, or any you know any questions that come up later related to the price crisis response initiative that the SCA has launched uh, that Vera is a part of as well uh, please do get in touch uh, the email address is pricecrisis@sca.coffee. Uh, we also have uh, some resources um, where you can learn about the, the mission of the team. You can learn about all the different things that have been happening over the past few months. Uh, and you can find that on our website. That's sca.coffee forward slash price crisis. Just one word, sca.coffee forward slash crisis. Uh, Vera, thank you very much. Vera and Peter, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, thanks to everybody who joined us on this call. Uh, thank you for your questions. Um, and we'll see each other again soon. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.